0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 5th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll discuss soccer player Alejandro Bedoya's unusual goal celebration on Sunday, getting on mic, and calling on Congress to address gun violence. We'll also be joined by Kyle Wagner of the New York Daily News to talk about the sadness of Jeremy Lin and Carmelo Anthony, the one-time New York Knicks teammates who've now both been rejected by the NBA. Finally, Omaha World Herald reporter Henry Cordes will be here to explain why big-time, big-money college athletic departments are investing in women's rowing. I will tell you that it is not, because they love women's rowing. Joining me... In Slate's Washington D.C. studio is the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the one and only Stephen Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. You spell bureau b-u-r-o? If I was going to say Slate's Washington D.C. bureau, yeah. Is that like a Wall a Street little Journal, a AP little thing? journalese.
1: Yeah. A little inside lingo.
0: You're an old crusty newspaper guy. Yeah. I feel like we don't we don't get into that as uh, enough. Hey, when I started my career, we were typing on computers. <laughs> Impressive. Let's talk about what happened this weekend. It was a shitty, depressing weekend, was it not? On Saturday in El Paso, Texas, a white nationalist killed at least 20 people at a Walmart. That night in Dayton, Ohio's nightlife district, a shooter wearing a mask and a bulletproof vest killed at least nine people. On Sunday, the Houston Astros and Cleveland Indians held moments of silence for the victims. Soccer player Alejandro Bedoya did not stay silent. Bedoya, who plays for Philadelphia Union and Major League Soccer and was on the last U.S. men's national team to make the World Cup in 2014, tweeted on Sunday afternoon, seeing more thoughts and prayers, bullshit. Words without actions are just worthless. America, it seems, is becoming a dystopian society. Do something. Enough. On Sunday night, in a game televised on Fox Sports 1, Bedoya scored in the third minute of the union's 5-1 win against D.C. United. He then ran to the corner and grabbed the on-field microphone. Let's listen.
1: In the third minute, the captain comes up with a very big
3: goal. Congress, do something now. End gun violence. Let's go.
0: Bedoya's statement could be heard on TV, but not in the stadium. Within seconds of it happening, the clip was being shared everywhere on social media. Stefan, I'm sure the TV ratings for this Union-United game were basically nil, but that makes this even more powerful as a case study for how far an athlete, really any athlete's voice, can carry when they speak up. Yeah, I mean, Alejandro Bedoya... 66 caps. Soccer fans know who he is. He is not LeBron James. He is I did not, not know he was on the Philadelphia Union, personally.
1: Played overseas. He played in Scotland. He played in France. He's had a great career. But again, he's not a household name among U.S. Uh, sports fans. Soccer fans are pretty enlightened, though. And this is about, of course, the power of viral moments. Bedoya clearly knew where the mic was on the field. He knew who would be hearing it. It was not audible in the stadium, but it was audible on Fox. Um, And he knew that he would get attention. And he said that after the game, that he felt compelled to say something, that it wasn't enough for him to not use his platform as an athlete to try to to send a message.
0: So part of the story here is what Bedoya did and chose to do. And I can't recall a similar moment. Bedoya himself wore a T-shirt. After the Parkland shooting, in memory of the victims, we've seen T-shirts from WNBA players first, NBA players, the I Can't Breathe shirts, obviously the gestures during the national anthem, players speaking up in all manner of ways and all manner of platforms. But an in-game declaration into an on-field microphone as part of a celebration was new. And I think that novelty is a lot of the reason why this went viral. Well, and the passion, too. I mean, he's yelling in
1: that clip. You can feel how emotional he is. Think about what athletes go through during games. They are focused. They have to be paying attention to what's going on in the field. Their intent is to succeed. In, in Bedoya's case, it's to score a goal and then to transition out of that and remember that this is on my mind and I want to do something on field. I mean, clearly, it's thought about it. He must have, in some ways, planned it out. But to have the presence of mind to, A, do well, score, and then, B, Have the presence action. of mind to
0: score. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've got to score. Then I can talk about gun violence. I mean, that's pretty clearly, like, if he hadn't scored, he wouldn't. Have, no. Had the platform. So maybe that was his motivation, right? Perhaps so. We talked last week about sports and politics and where the twain shall meet. And the other thing that I think is noteworthy here is that this wasn't a moment before a game. This wasn't a moment after a game. By doing this during a game, he was very consciously mixing sports and politics. There is no way that you could watch this game as a sports fan just wanting to see the action on the field and not hear Mm -hmm. what he had to say. I guess if you're in the stands, that was an exception. If you're watching this on television or happen to be on Twitter on Sunday night, and that, I think, shows, again, the power of what an athlete and what athletes can do is despite what Jimmy Pataro, the president of ESPN, might say, despite what Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, might say, and this is a guy who, in a Pataro-like statement has said, we don't want any political signage in our stadiums. They can't control a moment like this.
1: No, but the platforms have the ability to exercise some control. And, you know, I didn't watch the game and I didn't watch Fox's any any highlight shows after or look at Fox's clips online. But apparently Fox Soccer did cut Bedoya's statement out of their goal highlights while Major League Soccer did not. I watched, and you did too, I think, Josh, most of Scott Van Pelt's ESPN highlight show late last night and – Before I finally fell asleep at almost one o'clock, I hadn't seen anything about Bedoya's goal. So it's hard to know. Like, was that a choice that Scott Van Pelt made? Was it a choice that producers made? Was there a memo circulated that said, hey, let's leave this out of the show?
0: Last night and this morning, Bedoya and his statement were one of the top headlines on ESPN.com. Yeah, and it was
1: on the crawl on the TV screen during Van Pelt's show. But these are the weird decisions that... Sports executives are going to... I
0: mean, as a viewer, it makes you wonder, though. Like, that is what's pernicious about this. And I don't know what Van Pelt's decision-making process was or anybody else at ESPN. But I think the real danger of whether it's this ESPN policy or any social media policy at any company that attempts to control what people write and think is that people will self-censor and say is this over the line? Is this on the line? You know what? I don't really want to pick this fight. I don't want to get in trouble. Maybe I won't get in trouble, but like, do I really want this headache and annoyance in my life? And maybe that's what happened. Maybe that's what didn't happen. But again, as a viewer, you're just going to wonder, like, are people censoring themselves? Are people able to say what they really feel and believe in the way that Alejandro Bedoya was able to on the field? Right, because inarguably,
1: this was newsworthy whether you believe it was a political statement or not, it was newsworthy. This happened during a professional sports league game. This was news. And if you don't cover it as news because you're worried that someone might interpret it as political, then you have a problem.
0: Well, ESPN and Fox Sports and MLS, in this case, didn't really control this highlight. It was shared by people um, I saw it on Twitter. I presume that it was all over Facebook as well. But it was shared by folks who are not generally sports highlight sharers. And it only took a handful of people who were actually watching the game before it was everywhere and before people who don't get their news or even people who do get their news from ESPN saw it. And So, right, so it's
1: not like anyone's not going to see it. The yeah. question
0: is how we're going to think about entities like ESPN and Major
1: League Soccer and Fox Sports in our own collective consciousness. We talked about this last week too, and I think it's only magnified here. You mentioned Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer. He did an interview with ESPN a few days ago and he talked about, he was asked about political signage at games. And in MLS, this has been an issue out in Seattle where one of the fan groups, Emerald City Supporters, was warned about displaying a banner for an anti-fascism group. The issue then is who's deciding what's political and what's not? Garber's answer was that we have a strict policy. We don't allow political signage. It's not a question of judgment about which group is right and which group is wrong, which group we should support or not support.
0: He said, our stadiums are not environments where our fans should be expressing political views because you then are automatically opening yourself up to allowing counter views. I mean, this guy is is a dweeb. Obviously, this is a fantasy. It's a fiction. He was asked about well what about people wearing make america great again hats he evaded the question because there's no it's good hard, way to, it's to hard for me it. to
1: respond to these kinds of things
0: yeah i mean if you're going to put yourself in position of defining what's political and what's not political you're going to it's a losing proposition and so what these risk-averse leagues and entities end up doing is just banning everything rather than having the guts to say that some things are okay and some things aren't. You can understand why for a corporate uh, officer, it would be more appealing to just say no to everything. It's safer, Mm -hmm. but it's just not a point of view that's compatible with the way that the world exists today. Right. If you're saying that white supremacy is bad and your answer is, well,
1: we can't allow that to be said, then you're opening yourself up to ridicule and to a blowback. I mean, this is how extreme movements foster themselves. This is how they grow by reasonable people giving them standing. I mean, Tom Skoka's piece in Slate over the weekend about refusing to identify and condemn racism out of concern for offending people's rights to be racist. And this is not dissimilar to that.
0: Well, with the Bedoya thing, so There will probably be an announcement made after we record this, but before the show comes out, Andrew Doss of the New York Times reports it's unlikely that Bedoya will be suspended. His coach came out and supported him saying, in gun violence, Congress do something is, I think, inoffensive enough that the league will get behind it and the team will get behind it and maybe everybody will be wearing T-shirts at the next game and maybe there'll be a moment of silence. You know, the moment of silence is, I know that... It's well-intentioned, but it's kind of become, I don't know if you agree, it's like a thoughts and prayers, you know, the version of thoughts and prayers for sports. The U.S. women's national team did one before their friendly against Ireland. As I said, the baseball teams all did it. I was looking up like Washington Nationals moment of silence to do like research for my intro. And it's like there's moments of silence after all of these shootings. And it's just like part of the background and part of the like scenery of every mass shooting. So it's good, I think, that Bedoya did something different to shake us out of our stupor there a little bit. Um, But, you know, the question is, what if Bedoya at the next game goes and says, like, Republicans, uh, you know, you need to go back and put... Mitch McConnell put the Senate back in session. Like that's not going to be something that's going to be looked on as uh, kindly, even though it's like basically the same sentiment. Protect State the sanctity
1: of-, <laughs> of the 2020
0: elections, <laughs> Moscow, Mitch. I mean, it's it's the same sentiment expressed sure. in a slightly different way. I mean, you saw when Megan Rapinoe kneeled for the national anthem. U.S. Soccer banned kneeling during the national anthem, and so it's. I think it's easy for MLS and the Philadelphia Union and whoever to say like yeah we totally support be- Bedoya's you know ability to stand up for what he believes in well well we'll see
1: well here's what's going to happen you're not going to be able to talk into the microphone on the field that will be an automatic red card or something there'll be some way to sort of react
0: directly All to right, MLS the, players get the, a get a man narrow, before we, we pass that legislation narrow
1: actions of Bedoya here without
0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week,
1: Jeremy Lin went on a Christian television show in Taiwan and bared his soul. The ultimate NBA shooting star, the celestial kind. Lin's career was defined by a two-month stretch for the New York Knicks in 2012, during which... Out of Harvard, but also out of nowhere, he dominated the NBA. But after the Knicks wouldn't match a free agent offer, Lin's career flatlined amid trades, bad fits, and injuries. He just won a ring as a bench warmer for the Toronto Raptors, but now he's a free agent and very bummed out. Speaking for almost an hour in front of a huge audience in Taiwan, Lin broke down in tears while lamenting his basketball journey. Let's listen.
4: I came into the NBA a, a young, brash
3: kid who thought I was going to take over the world. And nowadays I spend more time thinking about quitting.
4: I always tell myself if I have a son, I don't want him to make the NBA.
3: 我总是跟自己讲, 我就会, you
4: don't have to deal with fame. You don't have to deal with living your life and having all your failures on display to the whole world.
1: Damn, Jeremy. Kyle Wagner is with us. He's the sports editor of the New York Daily News, where he wrote a thoughtful essay about Jeremy Lin last week. He did not, I believe, compose the Doleful Piano soundtrack behind Jeremy Lin's talk. <laughs>
2: Hi, Kyle. Hey, Stefan. What's up?
1: This is going to be a segment about Lin and Carmelo, but I want to start with Lin. In your piece, Kyle, you lay out why Jeremy Lin is a complicated figure. And I do want to be sympathetic to Jeremy Lin. So let's talk about that first. Why should we be sympathetic to Jeremy Lin?
2: So I would start at the top with racism and not only to Jeremy. So Jeremy is obviously the first Asian American player to find success in the modern NBA. But at the start and really throughout uh, his tenure in New York. We also have to talk about Carmelo Anthony. So in order for Jeremy to succeed, Carmelo had to be out. Amari Stoudemire had to be out. Baron Davis that year, uh, just the, the Knicks were ravaged by inju- injuries. And that's why Jeremy found success, because really, Jeremy is a ball-pounding, ball-dominant point guard when he's at his best. That's what he was during the insanity, And that's the reason that he had this opportunity. That came at the expense of Carmelo Anthony. Who has just never been a fan favorite uh, around the league. He has for a little while, but attached to him are all of the criticisms that are traditionally assigned to black players, mostly by racists, by, by uh, fans who just find reasons to pick at black players. And Jeremy, as a Harvard grad, as an Asian American, as a, just a non black player, was assigned a lot of the virtues that, like, we just talked about him being a, Mariah just talked about him being a ball-pounding point guard, that's not what is assigned to him. He was assigned basically all the characteristics that you would give to Kirk Heinrich, which is to say he was, in effect, treated like a white player. And that has engendered, I think, across his career, a lot of resentment toward him.
0: So, Len, for that period with the Knicks kind of found basketball nirvana, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated two straight weeks and... He was on the back page of the Daily News five days in a row. There we go. And then it went south so quickly, both because of this kind of backbiting on the team with Carmelo Anthony not being happy that Lynn was getting this attention, and then Carmelo Anthony calling the offer sheet he got from the Rockets a ridiculous contract. Then when he went to the Rockets you know, being with James Harden, a guy who's not going to share the ball. And we could just go on and on and on. And I think for those reasons, Stefan, I am sympathetic to Jeremy Lin because, you know, basketball is a sport, you know, like all sports, we like to think of them as a meritocracy. But I think Lin can rightly feel like he had a very hard time breaking into the NBA before he got to the Knicks. He was not drafted. He had a very hard time getting playing time on the Knicks. He gets it for this very brief period. He does really well. And then since then, it's just this series of, as we said, bad situations, injuries, and you know, having people still, you know, doubt him and say that what he accomplished wasn't even real. And him feeling, I guess, Kyle, like he hasn't had the chance really to prove it, prove it and back himself up and, and just to have this like one tantalizing moment of when he really did get the opportunity maybe makes it worse for him.
2: Yeah. And uh, that's really one of the, I'm not going to say tragedy because he hasn't made a lot of money. He has, a, he has had a good career, but that's one of the frustrating parts about following and supporting uh, Jeremy as, you know, I'm an Asian fan who got excited about Linsanity, follows his career. Where So I'll touch on something you just said, actually, the injuries that have followed him across his career, at least the reputation. Uh, so after that first year in New York, where which did end prematurely with injury, after that, he's played seven seasons. In five of those, he's played at least 71 games. The two seasons in Brooklyn were the only two in which he was were severely shortened. In one season, he only played one game. In the previous season, he'd only played, I think, 31. But... That's an image that follows him around because that was going to be his chance under Kenny Atkinson, who is very good with point guards. D'Angelo Russell, Jeff Teague, Spencer Dinwiddie, he's done very good things with them. And he was actually the assistant coach in New York while Jeremy was there. And he just has the worst two injury seasons of his career. So absolutely, it's just been a, a series of misfortune, misfortunate events. But at the same time, when he's been healthy, he's produced at a very high level. He's very good on true shooting percentage, which is your kind of gold standard of, is this player efficient, or are they taking too many shots, or are they missing too many shots? He typically isn't. He can get to the hole, he scores well at the rim, and uh, this just isn't the way that we think about him. We think about him more as, uh, as kind of a flop, a disappointment.
1: And the image of Jeremy Lin was shaped by some of the things we've discussed. In addition, he was not recruited out of high school, played in the Ivy League, played for Harvard. There is inherent bias there, and probably the most Shocking or surprising and interesting commentary on Lynn's career was made by Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Rockets, in a book by Michael Lewis from a few years ago. Morey talks about how their model said that he was worth like the 15th pick in the draft, um, but... The objective measurements didn't line up with the way people saw him as a basketball player, that he wasn't terribly athletic, that he was an Asian kid. you know. And Maury said, we didn't trust the model, and so they chickened out and didn't draft Jeremy Lin. The follow-up is that Maury discovered a year later when they started to measure metrics like the speed of a player's first two steps that Jeremy Lin was, in fact, the quickest first moves of any player that were measured. Um, He's incredibly athletic, Maury said, but the reality is that every fucking person, including me, thought he was unathletic, and I can't think of any reason for it other than he was Asian.
2: Yeah, came out and said it. I mean, it's devastating.
1: I mean, it's candid, but it's also you know, devastating and really sad.
0: I think that, you know, Kyle, one thing that Lynn has been throughout his career is candid and open, and he has this fan base that's hungry and desperate to hear from him and to, you know, take from him positives about his experience. And so I think a lot of NBA players and a lot of athletes in general are sad about how their career went and have grievances about how it went, about the coach that didn't play them, about the opportunities they didn't get. It's just the fact that so much is put on Lin because of his identity that this gets so much of a of a hearing and a platform.
2: I think that's true. And I think it's also true that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of sympathy and empathy for, for Jeremy, for the reasons that we've already discussed, that uh, he's had a Pretty productive career, uh, despite uh, you know having a reputation for injuries, having a reputation for not showing up. He's he's actually uh, produced pretty well. He has uh, been a good player, and so when he complains about um, not being in the league right now, not being signed right now, he's, he's still you know technically whatever uh, that he doesn't deserve these things, that he doesn't hasn't deserved his time. And while that is not true, you know, based on the the court, because he has carried around um, just having been the bludgeon for you know, white hope that he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt that other players do from a lot of people who otherwise um, do uh, have sympathy, have empathy for players that are treated pretty unfairly. And NBA media does treat players very unfairly. And it has had like real effects on, on their pockets, frankly. The JaVale, Javale McGee talks about uh, the shacked in a fool, shacked in a fool, which is very funny, and Javale does make ridiculous mistakes. Uh, talks about how those, like just a few plays in his career, have turned him into a meme and into, into just a running joke. And that reputation has followed followed him around, and he has had pretty productive seasons. He's he's developed as a player. He's a much better player now than he was. Uh, but that reputation, Shack in a fool, just follows him around, and it's cost him money. It's cost him the respect of his peers and fans, also.
1: You say respect, and what I think Jeremy Lin's candor also has engendered is resentment. I mean, he has been in the NBA for nine years. That is an extraordinarily long career. Uh, You quoted an Instagram post by Rashad McCants, who's been out of the league for a long time, Man, this guy had at least six different opportunities. Speaking of people that
0: are bitter about their careers.
1: Yeah. Man, this guy had at least six different opportunities to thrive, made more money than most guys, 10 times better than him, has billions of people behind him in Asia, given up on you. Wow. You will soon know what it feels like once you're completely forgotten about. Just think if you had to fight the guys who were better for the spot you were given. All that brown nosing and doing it right looks good to the front office. But when you're a below average player, real Hoopers not trying to hear that shit. That's not entirely fair, obviously, and it does come from a place of resentment,
2: but I think it might.
1: <laughs> but it does raise the question of when an athlete is true to himself and being honest. I mean, it really felt a lot like self pity when you listened to Jeremy Lin talk on that stage in Taiwan, but that is where he is right now, and that's a desperate place.
2: I think you also have to remember he's talking to a Christian audience, and like, sure. I'm not really religious, I was raised Catholic, so but that's kind of the mode he was speaking in also on that stage. So I, th- I think that's, that's something we have to think about with that. But at the same time, the below average thing is, is exactly what we've been talking about, where I would refer you to Jeremy's Stats from Atlanta in this past season, where he was one of the best bench players in the league, and he just sucked in Toronto. He sucked out loud. But if you look at you know, his season as a whole, that's a pretty average player. And in the NBA, Average is pretty good. Average is almost always signed. Average means better than about half the players in the league. So look at who was in the league playing guard last season. Jose Calderon. Raymond Felton played a few games and he wasn't in there. Like, but there are players that are much worse, who are about as good as Jeremy was in Toronto, and far worse than I think what a team could expect from really not a playoff run of you know Lynn you know, sucking against the playoff team.
0: All right, let's get to the long awaited Carmelo Anthony portion of this conversation. (laughs) It is just so fascinating that their careers have converged in this way. Uh, Carmelo, also unsigned, went on first take with Stephen A. Smith. uh, And as as so often happens, Stephen A., that man can create some uh, compelling television. Um, They did a long interview where Carmelo talked about his grievances with the league, about how his grievances with Daryl Morey and how he wasn't treated right by the Houston Rockets uh, who got rid of him after just 10 games last season. Let's uh, listen to a clip of that conversation.
1: You don't believe there is one NBA team, one, that has 15 players on it better than you. I just want to be clear about that.
4: I'm not saying that it's 15 players better than me. I'm saying out of 30 teams, it's 15-man roster. You mean to tell me I can't make a 15-man roster? That's what that's what I'm saying. And and I start looking at it in a broader, in a broader perspective. That's where it don't
2: become about basketball to me. Mm-hmm. It becomes about politics.
0: So, you know, what this shows me, Kyle, is that no matter how many accolades you get and Carmelo's been on ten All Star teams, you can still you know, everybody ends up in the same place. Like not many guys get the D Wade farewell tour and gets to go back to his, you know, Team in Miami, where he's fawned over by by fans. Everybody's going to be upset with how things end. Everybody is going to have an outsized belief in their own ability, and you know we're all going to die someday, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So what stood out to me in uh, just with Mello is that he's trying so hard to to give this you know front of oh I'm I'm humbled, but I'm also um, you know I also still have something in the tank, but it's he can't because he knows like he is. An, it's about respect. It's just the way it was with Jeremy. Same as with Mello, he is. It's just a lot of disrespect and has always been put on his name across the last several years. And really, it's uh, and I get into this in the piece a little bit. It's a lot what happened to Jeremy, where with Carmelo at the same time. Uh, was making he was making much more than than Lynn. He made signed a 145 or whatever max contract or just under the max. Phil Jackson would tell you, and he was making a lot of money. He was making a lot of money before that, and the Knicks were not winning. The Knicks m- may won one playoff series in the last 20 years. He was part of that, but they were they were not finding the success that people expected when Anthony and Stoudemire came to town. So he's taken a lot of abuse across the years. While it really wasn't his fault, aside from really kind of pushing that trade through, uh, it wasn't his fault as far as on the court. He played at a very high level. He played up to the level that you would expect someone making a max salary to play. And the only problem was he wasn't LeBron James. And this is a thing of mine. You can't yell at players for not being LeBron James. Like, we only have one of those.
0: So in the last few years, Stefan, Carmelo's level has dropped. He is not, never been a good defender. He's now an extremely bad defender. And when he was uh, on the Thunder in the playoffs, they benched him for long stretches. And they found him unplayable because teams would just try to, with success, prey on him when Carmelo was on defense. And, but, it, you know, where I come down to this is, like, it's not his job to, like, have an accurate perception of his own abilities in order to succeed in any sport um but in the nba in particular you need to think that you are the greatest player in the world and carmelo i think for a long time rightly thought he was the best you know scorer in the league the best one on one player and so he is doing his job believing in himself the league is doing its job telling him that you're not good enough to be the player that you think you are and thought you were. And there is inherently some conflict there. Except that
1: players who reach their early to mid-30s often have to make some sort of compromise between their perception of themselves, their vision of themselves as a 23-year-old in the NBA versus the reality of being 33 in the NBA, a, a sort of coming to terms with a decline in certain aspects of your game, in your skills doesn't feel like Carmelo ever got there. He was terrible in those 10 games on Houston before they released him. He was a liability. Uh, Chris Thompson pointed out on Deadspin that the Rockets were 10.5 points better in terms of net rating when Melo was not on the court in those
0: games. Some players like Vince this Carter... Was, this was not discussed in the conversation with Stephen A. by either Carmelo or Stephen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Some players like Vince Carter get older and recognize what they have to do differently in order to stay in the league. If Carmelo really wanted to stay in the league and be helpful to a team, he might change the way he plays basketball.
2: Well, I would say that he had changed the way he played basketball when he got to the Thunder. It's just it didn't work out for him because right. so he started taking many more catch-and-shoot uh, threes, catch-and-shoot jumpers, and that's the, what we saw when he was at his best as FIBA Mello, as Mello just running over the, the Olympics, um, you know, every four years. And the shots just weren't going in as much. He shot 37% from three on catch and shoots. Uh, that's down from his number in uh, New York, where he was about a 42, 43% uh, shooter for his entire career on catch and shoots. And that's a, Big drop. That's, a, that's enough uh, where he was also shooting in the 30s on twos on catch and shoots. I'm not really sure how that works. I've, it's not coming to me. But he did change the way. Like many more of his shots were coming off catch and shoots, shots that he had made his entire career, that he had made in New York, that he had made in Denver, that he had made on the Olympic teams, and they just weren't going in in Oklahoma City. So he's made the adjustments, and uh, that could just be a, a down shooting year. But one thing I will mention, and I am, um, since your listeners probably don't know, I am just the biggest Russell Westbrook stand. I just defend him up and down. The one thing I will say is that the shooters on his team have always underperformed, and typically because he has bad shooters. But also, I did uh, I looked into this when I was at 538. They also might be shooting worse uh, when Russ is feeding them, because he kind of throws the ball off center, and you have to load the ball up. It's not just catch it and just put it right up like it is with a lot of point guards. So. There are a lot of things that went into that, but yeah, he had a really bad season in Oklahoma City before this. These past, uh, you know, this past season's ten games in uh, in Houston, also.
0: Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that folks are not going to give him the benefit of the doubt for all, you know, the reasons that Stefan was saying. This belief that there's certainly evidence to support that he is somebody who doesn't want to come off the bench. That he is somebody who doesn't want to subjugate his game to others on the floor. And so it's not I, about
2: basketball, it's about politics.
0: He it's said. about politics. And so I think when people see this interview, not necessarily inclined to believe that he's being honest with his audience or with himself. And, you know, maybe it was just a down shooting year. And, you know, but I think the resolution for this needs to be is like, we didn't talk about Amari Stoudemire being another guy who's like, <laughs> having workouts for NBA teams and thinks that he can be back in the NBA. What we need to see is the big three team of Jeremy Lynn, Carmel Anthony, Omari Stoudemire to tear that shit up. Yes. And then Absolutely. they will be promoted into the NBA as a trio. they will be a bench mob for the Lakers. I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> what's going to happen.
2: So one thing I, so I'll ask you, Melo had mentioned that uh, it was on the table for him to kind of be a part of that Miami big three. Do you think that would have worked out?
0: So this was in 2010, he signed a five-year deal with the Nuggets, and he said he wanted to just stay with Denver. He didn't want to go play with other superstars. Uh, he probably would have wanted to go go play with the Heat. but he, So basically, he wasn't available when that Heat super team was being made, and the idea was that maybe he would have gone there with LeBron and, and D-Wade instead of Chris Bosh. Uh, I think... That would have been a more talented group at that time, but it would have been a worse fit, right like because they needed bosch's they needed Bosch to be able to play at the five and to defend the Ram and to defend big guys, and that would have hamstrung them as far as being able to find another guy who could have played that role like I don't want to say that the heat like wouldn't have won a title with that trio, but I think just the fit wouldn't have been as good with those three guys, do you think?
2: I'm torn on this, and I've been thinking about it a lot, because what you said is absolutely right about Chris Bosh. He's one of the most underappreciated big men, or just stars that we've seen in the last 20 years. Uh, he completely changed his game. He was a post player. He kind of drifted um, up to the elbows and eventually out- passed three-point line with LeBron, because there's only one real, real way to play with LeBron. Uh, and he was just their entire backline defense. Uh, they had, you know, weak side defenders, but Bosh was really it. He was Draymond, playing the Draymond role before the Draymond role was really established. That said, the way that Bosch inverted his entire game, turned it upside down, offensively at least, uh, is kind of what Mello would have had to do. And so a lot of times in the NBA, guys just aren't asked to do things, or when they are, uh, they're asked to do very specific things. So if you look at Bosch's shot chart, uh, which is you can go to you know, a bunch of websites and they'll show you where Bosch shot and how well he shot from those places. Before he was in uh, Miami, the Toronto shot chart was, you know, he was all on the, on the blocks, and that's really it. Uh, a few jumpers here and there. That turns upside down where he's at the elbows, and he's out past the line while LeBron is there. And then LeBron leaves, but Bosch has spent these last four years just pushing his jumper farther and farther back, having to take the ball from the elbow and drive to the rim, like learning all these things that are just the LeBron ball style. And you see just it's flips. As soon as LeBron goes back to Cleveland, Bosch's shot chart just blossoms. All of a sudden, he's taking shots from all over the court. He is, he's scoring from everywhere. He's scoring well from everywhere. And to me, uh, I think that might have happened for Carmelo. If Carmelo was in a situation where he just didn't have to be the entire damn offense, I wonder, I wonder if, uh, if he would have refined the game, taken out a lot of the empty calories, and if we would have seen over the course of, you know, the last nine seasons, a more complete Carmelo uh, with or without LeBron, uh, you know, after those four years.
1: We're the Knicks bench mob, Josh. Don't you think, Kyle? They've got some room on their roster.
2: They Yeah, they have, what, 15, 16 power forwards. So, yeah, they, <laughs> they, need, they can fit them on the practice squad, at least.
1: Perfect fit. Kyle Wagner is the sports editor for the New York Daily News and the author of the piece, The NBA Has Never Forgiven Lynn Sanity for Being the Great White Hope. Go check it out. We'll post it on our show page. Thanks a lot, Kyle.
2: Thank you.
0: Before we get to our next segment, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will follow the lead of our hero, John Boyce, and discuss the least interesting sports statistical observations of all time, including the fact that in the 2017 regular season, the NFL had 228 passes that went for exactly 17 yards, whereas in 2018, that number jumped to 255 passes. Feel the mundanity. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. Money well spent. You can sign up at Slate.com slash hangup plus. Last month, the Los Angeles Times published an op-ed headlined, Captivated by the U.S. Women's Soccer Team Victory, Thank Title IX. CNN also published a piece with the title, If You Like Women's Soccer, You Should Know About Title IX while the nation's version declared the road to the World Cup began with Title IX. Title IX was passed by Congress in 1972. It decreed that schools that get federal money can't discriminate on the basis of sex in any activity. As all of those articles noted, one direct consequence of this was increased parity in sports. The LA Times reported that, for instance, there were 700 girls participating in high school soccer in 1972, compared to 390,000 today— It's an amazing shift, and it's a life-changing one for a huge number of girls and women, whether they're elite athletes or not. At the college level, individual schools are tasked with ensuring that women receive equitable athletic opportunities. Given what we know about college athletic departments, it shouldn't be all that surprising that they do not always make a good-faith effort to do so. Henry Cordes of the Omaha World-Herald just reported out a great series on Title IX for that paper. He joins us now. Welcome to the show, Henry. Hey, guys. Thanks. So the story that you wrote that first caught my attention, Henry, was about women's rowing. Can you start by telling us how that sport has exploded in popularity at the college level in recent years? And then we can get into why.
4: Yeah. If you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, there were only 20 women's rowing teams out there. They were mostly at schools like Brown and Harvard and, and Yale and uh, you know typical Ivy League kind of schools. But in the in the years since, then, particularly in the 1990s, you just saw the the number of teams explode. Uh, there's now uh, close to 90, and uh, and the number of rowing athletes has gr- has grown like more than tenfold. There's like 5,000 women's rowers out there, and the other thing that the 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 rosters are double what they were in 1990. Usually, a rowing team was about 30. Now it's well over 60. But really, what jumped out at me is just the large number of schools that have these just massive women's rowing rosters, 100 or more, um, and, and a lot of them are, you know, what we know is kind of big time football schools, Alabama, Clemson, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, um, you know, um, Wisconsin had reported a rowing numbers of 176. And so the, those numbers just kind of popped off at me, and, and I, I decided I need to look into it more to find out, you know, why that is happening.
1: And the why seems to be pretty clear. The reason that schools want to add more women to something like rowing is that it gives them Title IX cover. It creates opportunities by giving more women an opportunity to say they're on a varsity team and participating in a varsity sport. But at the same time, if you get the numbers up enough, you can add players to your football team, which is explicitly the case, at least you know, from the, from the conclusions that you draw in your
4: reporting. Right. Yeah. What happens is Title IX is very complicated. I mean, it, it's not – Um, uh, most people think that it requires to have equal number of male and female athletes or equal spending. And and it actually doesn't. It just says it has to be equitable and it gives schools several different ways to comply. One of them is to indeed balance their participation among men and women. and, And that's kind of probably the gold standard of title IX. If you can show that we have equal numbers of male and women participants uh, then you're in compliance. And so if you're trying to reach that, um, that plank, it's particularly difficult if you're a football school because we know football. Football has these rosters of 100 and, uh, or more easily. The average is about 120. And there's no comparable women's sport for that. So if you're a football school, how are you going to achieve that balance uh, uh, and um, on the women's side uh, to allow you to have this large, Football team. And it's pretty clear that a lot of the football schools have decided that rowing is the way to go on that.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, as we know, you don't actually need that many players on your football team. To these big time football schools, I mean, you're based in Nebraska. Nebraska's always had one of the bigger rosters. They feel like they need it, but you don't actually need that many players to field a, a football team. But at a school like Alabama, as you report, they had 120 women's rowers on their roster, having recognized that boats are large. And if you want to increase the number of women athletes for Title IX purposes, rowing is a very expedient way to do it. But as you showed, only 82 of those 120 competed in a varsity or novice race. And then another 22 who did compete only took part in a few early season races. So it seems like the legit number of rowers is 60. And yet they're Essentially double counting. Right. This is just – this is for accounting purposes. You Mm. load up a roster in the fall
1: and introduce women to a new sport. Say they're on the varsity team. But when it comes time to actually compete, they don't compete. Or by the time – Practices keep going and people realize that rowing is a grueling and time-sucking activity. (laughs) They drop out, but the university gets the benefit of saying that at the beginning of our season or whatever the date is for reporting purposes to the federal government, there were this many women on the roster and that's what counts toward our Title IX participation right
4: the the numbers are a little complicated but you can it's really easy to see why rowing appeals to the schools because yeah typical rowing a meet you're going to have like three eight person votes and maybe a couple of four person votes know, that's like 30 some competitors i mean compare that to women's basketball you know where you might have you know obviously only five on the court at a time maybe 10 in a game so it's a way to get a lot of women's competitors out there by having rowing well but what these but the problem is Where do you get these girls? Because rowing is not exactly a big time high school sport. In Nebraska. In Nebraska or anywhere else, (laughs) for that matter. There are not too many places. Let's put it that way. So... um, so what schools are, do is they put out a y'all come and, and and invite anybody on campus and they they get the word out to incoming freshmen and to and anybody else on campus. Hey, come give rowing a try. And they, they call them novice rowers. and And it's somewhat legit in that that you can find, you know, great athletes on campus who were like, maybe they were a good basketball or volleyball player in, in high school. They weren't good enough to play at, you know, a division one level, but they might be a, a pretty darn good athlete and they can recruit them. But the way the math works on this is, uh, so they invite all these essentially rookies out to compete and, um, as any of them that are still on the roster at the the time of the first competition, that's when the official count is con, is done under Title IX. Each year is when each team of your sports has its first competition. That's when you make your additional count. So yes, if you're a school and you have a whole bunch of these these novices on your roster at the time of that
0: first rowing meet in the fall, you get to count them all as female athletes. So one of your stories was about the swim team at. Nebraska-Lincoln and about how they have essentially this two-tiered system where there's a walk-on team. And for Title IX purposes, these women get counted as varsity athletes, but they have separate practices. They barely even see the women and the coaches for the regular swim team. And they only compete in a small handful of meets at the beginning of the year. And then like the quote-unquote real team goes on a trip to Hawaii and they don't go. I mean, it's very, very clear that these are not full participants in this program. They're not in the team photo. <laughs> they're not in the right. team photo. And right. yet for Title IX purposes, they're counted exactly the same.
4: Right. That What happened at Nebraska was they wanted to expand the football ro- roster when Scott Frost came in as the football coach. He was used to a much bigger roster when he was back at Nebraska decades earlier. And so, they they how can we add more uh, football players? Well, they they came up with this plan to add a dozen women swimmers last year. But you're right, um, nine of the twelve were these walk-ons, and you know when you look at the resumes, they did they just they weren't standout swimmers in high school. So to to think that they would have even been able to have any success on the Division One level was a little bit of a stretch. And then, no, and they, a lot of, they had a real second-tier status, right? Not in the team photo, weren't given lockers, and and, and uh, competed only in a few early-season meets. And then what, what really was the thing to me is they only practiced for half the season. They practiced separately from the varsity team. And then as of early November, which was not even halfway through the season, they were done. They, they weren't coached anymore, but but by then they were counted as female athletes. To me,
1: the most insidious part of these sorts of uh, of, uh, number bean-counting shenanigans is that there are ways to create more opportunities for legitimate female athletes in the NCAA, and that's to add sports that women actually play. At a high level, Nebraska could add. I think you said field hockey. They don't have a field hockey team. Nebraska competes in the Big Ten. There's some really Go good field hockey programs in the Big Ten, um, national championship competing field hockey programs. But there's one specific reason that schools like Nebraska would rather not add new sports, and that's cost. It's much cheaper to have 12 extra walk-on swimmers who get to go in the pool for an hour a day after the varsity than it is to add a full team that requires equipment, coaching staff, trainers, travel to your budget.
4: Right. I did the math on that. Even disregarding like facilities. Uh, just annual budgets of a field hockey team or a lacrosse team, which would be a sport that would actually make even, as much, if not more, sense than field hockey at Nebraska. Uh, you're talking a million and a half dollars, right. and and you know the uh, obviously big time schools like Nebraska have. They make a lot of money, but they spend
0: a lot of money too. And uh, um, and might need uh, to have some slightly less <laughs> thick carpeting in the football locker room. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, and if
4: really uh, I would make the case that if there's any school that can um, can afford to do things right, it's Nebraska. I mean, because of the passion of the football fans here and the fact that there aren't NFL teams here, uh, I mean, football is an absolute money machine in Lincoln. And, and and passion right now is incredibly high now that Scott Frost is back and coaching the team. Everyone thinks that they're on the verge of getting back uh, into the top tier and so they don't lack for money down in lincoln i, I that's for sure so is
1: there no pressure on the athletic department Are you reported that um other than the addition of sand volleyball a few years ago which was a way to give practice to the court volleyball team and nebraska has a, a very a, a powerful successful volleyball program there hasn't been a new women's sport since 1998
4: 20 right. plus years Right. You see there the, were the three planks of Title Nine, I'm just you know, one, like I said, is matching participation. The other is having a history, if you can show, well, we have a history of adding women's sports. Almost no schools, including Nebraska, can, can say they comply with that one anymore because most schools stopped adding women's sports decades ago. You know, we're five decades down the road on Title IX now. Most of the additions of sports were happening in the first couple of decades. So it's hard for Nebraska or any school to say they comply with that one. And so a lot of schools are kind of trying to comply with that um, that first plank. And I think that's kind of what was happening with what what they were doing with the swim roster.
0: So an interesting uh, point that was made by one of your sources that I hadn't considered before is that levels of participation in high school for women, it's up to about 42.8%, um, which is just enormous leap from 7% of all high school athletes being women Um, when Title IX was passed in 1972. But 43% is not 50%. And so then the question is, if we're talking about equitable opportunity, have we reached a point where we can say there have been a couple of generations, 43% seems like a good and fair and accurate number. Let's just aim for in college for the number to be 43% rather than having it be whatever the level of of women in the student body is right
4: no that i was actually the one that raised that question because i I looked at the high school data and it's it's it women's relative to men in the high school level is still growing i should say girls and boys but um but it's largely flattened out and it would take another uh, on the current pace it would take another 35 40 years before they would ever match up yet Yes. On the college level, we're, we essentially take a view that it should be 50-50. And so I raised the question, is it possible that girls are just less interested in doing sports than men? But I'll tell you, the, the female uh, Title IX advocates, they are just adamant that that is not the case, that, that women are just as e- Uh, If you give them a a good opportunity, they are just as interested as men and women. But to me, the numbers suggest something different than that.
1: Except that football does skew all of this because football rosters, even at a high school level, are much bigger than any women's sports roster. Um, Now, I do think that over the next next (laughs) two generations, there are going to be a lot fewer people playing football in high point. schools. So <laughs> that is going to change the participation numbers dramatically. And that's right. just
0: nailing it with his well, answer. Well,
4: the, 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 the numbers are, yeah, the numbers are, are not changing that much in the, in, in the big-picture right now. So I don't know how long it would take to get the point. And I I just didn't understand why it was such a, 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 so heretical to suggest that women might not be as interested in sports. My daughters, now they weren't that interested in sports. I'm not going to use them as an example, but I will say they were part of the chorus in high school. And in the chorus, 80% of the participants were girls. Does that mean the chorus was discriminating against boys? Um, and, and that's why the, the numbers were so out of balance. Yeah, but if are not, you know, it, look, or did it relate to interest? Well, except that if you
1: give, I think it's also been historically demonstrated that if you give girls an opportunity to play, they will play. Here in Washington D.C., the public school system was hit with two federal complaints about Title IX participation levels. One of the responses by the city's athletics programs was to add more women's sports and guess what girls play flag football now and Hmm. you know there isn't that much the problem in inner city schools is funding Um, but again when football sucks up a lion's share of school budgets for athletics you have to find creative workarounds and if you can find new sports that girls have not had a chance to play they will historically; it's been demonstrated.
0: Play them, and you can't—you yeah. can't just assess what interest is in a vacuum and separate it from cultural and social conditioning right. and norms. And so, we're just never going to get like a controlled yeah. experiment in America or the world about what a true uh, level of interest is. And so, I, I do think it's noteworthy that after the numbers increased to like a huge degree, then they have flattened out somewhat. That seems like a data point that we should pay attention to, but it's not something that I think means that it will be 43% forever till the end of time.
4: Yeah, but no one could make the case to me that the reason we have this 14% gap between girls and boys' participation on the high school level is discrimination. I just, I I said, show me where that discrimination is happening. And uh, I just couldn't get a, uh, I I didn't reach any conclusion on it. Mm -hmm. I just did a story on it because I'm it, we should raise the question because the, 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 the numbers are what the numbers are.
1: Yeah. I mean, the takeaway from your series to me, Henry, really is that if you're manufacturing opportunities that aren't legitimate, this has been a long complaint of Title IX advocates, then that's not genuine outreach and genuine intent to help women have more opportunities in sports. If you're just dumping them on a roster and not letting them compete where you could be creating teams that would be competitive, there's a big
4: difference there. Right. No, I agree with that. Totally.
0: Henry Cordes writes for the World Herald in Omaha and his series on Title IX, uh, we will link to on our show page. Henry, thank you so much. Hey, this was fun, guys. Thanks. Now it is time for Afterballs. And Stefan, Title IX was co-authored by Senator Birch Bayh and Congresswoman Patsy Mink. Patsy Mink died in 2002. It was renamed the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity and Education Act. Mink represented Hawaii, first non white woman, first Asian American woman elected to Congress. There is a Nebraska connection for Patsy Mink. She went to the University of Nebraska in the 1940s. She protested racial uh, discrimination in dorms there and got it overturned. She was elected president of a group called the Unaffiliated Students of the University. Of Nebraska, which was a student government for non white students. Very cool woman. Yeah. Patsy Mink. I did not know that about Patsy Mink. Good namesake for Title IX. Patsy T. Mink, Equal Opportunity and Education Act. Stephen, what is your Patsy Mink?
1: Well, it is summer, which means that America's football coaches are once again turning boys into men. And last week in Fairbanks, Alaska, that process involved a drill in which 40 players were ordered into the deep end of a pool while wearing a sweater, which they then had to take off and put back on again A handful of the high school players couldn't swim. Three began to drown. The head coach reportedly stopped a lifeguard from rescuing the boys. It's okay. They've got it on their own. One player quoted the coach as saying. The lifeguard and assistant coaches finally dived into the pool. The three boys were unresponsive and required CPR, but all survived. The near disaster in Alaska wasn't the first of its kind. In 2017, a 16-year-old football player on Long Island died when a 10-foot-long, 400-pound log that he and four teammates were forced to hold aloft while running a relay race fell on his head. Lawsuits are moving forward. What the sweater in the pool and log-carrying drills have in common is that they are staples of military conditioning programs that, despite these obvious risks, have been adopted by football and other sports at high schools and colleges in recent years. The goal is team building and leadership development through what's known as shared adversity, Last week in Muskegon, Michigan, an active Marine wearing fatigues and a T-shirt reading pain is weakness leaving the body put 110 players from two high schools through an hour-long grueling physical and mental exercise, according to a news report, at a beach on Lake Michigan. The players were made uncomfortable and possibly disoriented by getting all wet and sandy, and then they were barked through a series of military drills. The guy running the drills, Staff Sergeant Chase Andrus, he might have been interested in more than getting the Muskegon High Big Reds and the Saginaw Swan Valley Vikings ready for the upcoming season. He's the local recruiter for the Marines. In Las Cruces, California last week, the Centennial High School football team went through an annual ritual running a mile and a half up a mountain while carrying a 10 to 20-pound rock. The run started at 5 a.m. It lasted about two hours. Players could not drop the rock. This rock represents all the adversity that you're facing, the coach Aaron Ocampo shouted. It might be hard and you might feel like you can't keep going, but we leave no man behind. We will get to the top of that mountain. Ocampo made the kids stop and do about a dozen exercises along the way, crawl under bars while holding their rocks, do 25 push-ups with their hands on their rocks, push their rocks on the ground while going uphill. At the end, the kids ceremonially tossed their rocks into a pile. Ocampo commented on each rock, praising some players for hauling man rocks. This style of training isn't new. Dozens of colleges from Duke to Michigan to Tufts in multiple sports, men's and women's, have hired companies that promise military-style leadership training by putting players through Navy SEALs, Marines, or Army drills. Missouri's men's basketball team called the two-day workout that it paid for Judgment Day What's the point of this? Well, coaches, of course, love comparing sports to war and athletes to members of the military. Reporters buy into it, too. Stories about kids hauling rocks and crawling through the mud are almost uniformly positive and adopt military language. Marched troops fought battle warriors. The players talk about commitment. The coaches talk about toughness and discipline in the sadistic, controlling way that coaches of unpaid athletes tend to do. We were on the field at 8 o'clock Monday night, got off the field a little after 11, 30, and we're in the pool at 4.30 the next morning. That's what North Carolina State football coach Tom O'Brien said in an ESPN story after subjecting his team to one of these sessions a few years ago. Guess what drill they did on, like, three hours of sleep after almost four hours of nighttime exercise? That's right. They had to exchange sweaters in the deep end of the pool while some ex-military dude screamed at them. NC State went 7-6 and that season. O'Brien was fired. Whether this stuff has any real effect psychologically or athletically, who knows? But one of these companies, which calls itself The Program, says on its website that its training workshops are for pro and college teams only— which is telling. The fact that these people aren't willing to peddle their day-long leadership training to high schools might be a sign that they're not appropriate for adolescents. But tough guy coaches know better. They're the target audience for the bellicose marketing babble of outfits like The Program, which goes on at length on its website about how its logo is influenced by the shield of ancient Sparta, for the love of fuck, the tragic results in places like Alaska and Long Island are sadly predictable.
0: Josh, what's your Patsy Mink? One of my favorite weeks of the year was last week, City Open Tennis Tournament. Uh, If you ignore, Stefan, the idiocy of holding a tennis tournament outdoors in D.C. in August, but it wasn't even that hot this year. Good job, new City Open uh, owner Mark Eyne. Not hot. What was it, like, 92? At night, it got down into, like, the low 80s. It was pleasant. Highlights of this year's tournament were, uh, this was Coco Goff's first event since Wimbledon. I went to see her during qualifying, 15 years old, made it through the qualifying rounds, lost in the first round of the tournament. She did end up winning the women's doubles, so she was kind of hanging around all week. Just a delightful uh, individual, great player. Um, I saw this moment where a little kid was kind of shyly, uh, you know, approaching her and she said, you know, this 15 year old was like, don't be shy. Come over here What's your name, like extremely like uh, if not totally comfortable with her level of fame. I think it's all kind of bewildering to her. Seems just like extremely aware of you know the fact that there are children who look up to her and like want to be her and want to be around her and seems cool with that. It was very neat to see. Other teenage Americans did really well in this tournament. So Goff won the doubles with Katie McNally, who's 17 years old. And then there was another 17-year-old, Haley Baptiste, who's from D.C., beat Madison Keys in the first round, grew up right around the corner from the stadium in Rock Creek Park, young black American woman, this DC tournament benefits the Washington Tennis Foundation, which has been really great at uh, introducing and encouraging um, young black kids in DC to play tennis. And so this was an example of of that um, and coming to fruition. And it's also just really great to see like with Coco Goff, with Haley Baptiste, just a lot of like, black kids in D.C. going to this tournament and looking up to these players, which is always, um, you know, in a sport with traditional country club origins is always very cool to see. Uh, The main thing from this tournament for me, though, was this is my first time ever seeing Nick Curios. Curios won the tournament on the men's side. We have talked about him on this program before. I watched him play three times and he is, as we've discussed, unlike any other person playing this sport. And it really, you know, that was really reinforced by seeing him in person. So in like a big stadium like there is in in Rock Creek Park in in D.C., there's, you know, the, the seats kind of go up very quickly so you can have a good view of the court. And so it's this. Strange feeling of looking down. It feels very like theatrical and dramatic, where you have all these people like staring down from a mountaintop at these two players on the court. And Curio seems to understand that in order to make your presence known in an environment like that, you need to like play big and have big gestures and really play to the crowd. And when he is at his best, He has command of the stadium like nobody else I have ever seen. So one of the matches I saw him play against Yoshihito Nishioka, the first set was, whether in person or on television, the best display of serving I've ever seen. He had 18 first serves in the first set and made 17 of them at like 130 some odd miles per hour. And he won 16 of those points. Like Nishioka had absolutely no chance. Um, He did a fake underarm serve, one of the first points, Nishioka is like a very charming guy himself, like laughed about it and they were both having a good time. A moth came on the court and Nishioka was afraid of the moth and like the, a ball boy came and got rid of it. And then Curious like pointed behind him like the moth was still there. And he's like, I'm just kidding, man. And everybody laughed about that. It was genuinely a funny moment. Curious was like hitting shots between his legs the whole match. Um, this was all like the first set or the second set. Then I left and I saw afterwards for reasons that I think nobody really understood curious threw a water bottle at the chair of the chair empire and like threw it so hard that the label of the water bottle stuck to the chair. It was just like a very bizarre and angry aggro moment in a match I didn't see against Gilles Simone. He also refused to shake the chair empire's hand at the end. Um, and so there are these like, kind of moments of just anger and frustration that come out that it's it's seems inexplicable and it's also just incredibly awkward for the crowd um and so all of this culminated in the semifinal match against Stefan's sports hero the greek gods stefanos 20 <laughs> year old uh stefanos 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 um each of them won 91 points in this match they each won 48 of their 58 first serves and each won 16 of their 33 second serves very evenly matched but in fact if you watch the match it wasn't that even curious was up a set and a break again in the first set his serve was just untouchable he's the best serve in men's tennis like there's nothing you can do about it with his power and placement and when he's playing at his best he is unbeatable Um, He lost just three points on his serve in the first set. He was hitting drop shots. He was just, the crowd was loving it. Then in the second set, sort of by where I was sitting, there was this conflict in the stands where a woman accused a man of pushing her, her child. This was happening during a changeover. And this woman starts shouting, like if you touch my kid again, just over and over again, and she's leaving the stadium. And this is when the players are starting to play. And Kyrias loses the first point while this is happening. And he gets extremely agitated about it. I think he wasn't clear about why someone was shouting in the stands, what was going on. And he just loses his mind. Like, he cannot deal with it. He blames this disturbance in the crowd for him losing a point in his serve when he had been, like, totally locked in and totally ahead in the match. He loses his serve. And he just goes away in the set. He stops trying He throws his racket twice. There's a a service game where uh, Stefanos is uh, serving. And (laughs) he um, just starts hitting forehands, like 120 miles per hour, like out. Then he he like accidentally makes one and just starts shaking his head because he'd been trying to lose the game on purpose. He ends up losing the set. People in the crowd are booing him. And then in the third set, he gets it back together. Hmm. starts holding his serve again, gets to the third set tie break. He's down a match point, 6-5. Hits an uh, unbelievable serve, saves match point. Then he gets match point for himself, goes to talk to a fan in the crowd, asks the fan, where should I serve this ball? This is a thing he started doing in this tournament. Goes up, hits the winning serve, goes back, hugs the fan, hugs uh, his opponent at the net. And that's that. Everybody cheers for him. After the match, Renee Stubbs, great commentator on the court, asks him, how did you kind of get it back together in the third set? He answers in like some totally banal way. Oh, I just needed to find my concentration. On the tennis channel, Jim Currier, another great commentator, asks him the same question. They both choose to ask about the third set, about, oh, you got it back together. How are you able to do that? Nobody asks him anything about the second set because he won and I think you want to focus on why he won rather than why he lost. Or maybe you don't want to make him mad just because he is not fun when he's angry. Um, but, you know, what I came away with from this tournament, and he won the final, Stefan, we were talking before we recorded about how he said this was one of the best weeks of his life. It changed him. Um, I feel like know, I've made major strides. And and maybe he has, but like... Um, You know, i also didn't talk about how he played ping pong with kids during the tournament. He like delivered shoes to Sitsipas in the semifinal. There were just all of these moments that showed what a great showman and how fun he is. And it's really 90% of the time that he's that. And then the 10% of the time when he's not is more memorable than the great stuff. Just because it's, I don't want to overstate it and say that it's scary, but it's just like very clear that he does not have control. I think it's simplistic to say that he doesn't want to try. He obviously wants to try and wants to win and revels in winning. But there are just moments where his like mental anguish or his inability to control his temper just outweigh everything else. And it's awkward. It's not fun for anyone. And when he doesn't win, it's not forgotten. And when he wins, it is forgotten, which I guess isn't surprising. But it's just like, it was a very tumultuous experience for me as a viewer.
1: Well, I do wonder whether Kyrios would be as good as he can be if all of that went away. Isn't that just part of his character? Isn't that part of his personality? I mean, he talks about wanting to get these things under control and out of his life. You know, after the tournament, he said a lot of habits needed to change. I just had a lot of unhealthy habits, and it was starting to show on the tennis.
0: Federer was famously like sullen and angry early in his career, but just never at this level. And so you question: is it something when it is at this level that you can eliminate, or can you only, you know, with McEnroe he would control it a lot of the time. But then it would explode in a way that, again, was not fun. Like there are the, you, you know, you cannot be serious. That stuff was, um, you know, I, I think at the time people, some people thought it was awful and some people thought it was great. But there is stuff from McEnroe that's much uglier mm-hmm. than that. And there are moments from Curious that are much uglier. And so I just think, you know, the other thing that this weekend reinforced for me is that when people say, you know, he's the most talented player, you know, you you might think that that's just because he's so clearly squandered so many of these opportunities, that that's just like a thing that people might say to uh, reflect the fact that, that it's squandered. But no, it's like he is really the most talented player out there, like that nobody can serve the way that he served. Nobody can do the things that he can do on the court. And so hopefully we'll see more of the good stuff and the bad stuff. That is our show for today. Producers, Melissa Kaplan, listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hang up. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more of the hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I will discuss the least interesting sports stat observations of all time. Trust us, you're going to want to tune in because they are deeply uninteresting. How do you feel about uh, this uninteresting statistic? Jeff Feagles, a punter, attempted eight passes in his career. He completed zero of them. Very interesting. I would say to be that expected. that's not That's not only not interesting, that is interesting. That crosses the threshold. Share that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus for Stefan Fatsis. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo, baby, and thanks for listening.
3: With lucky
1: landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
3: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
1: (gasps)